I'm excited to be sharing a message with you guys today, a new series that we're starting. Before I do, we've been kind of going through some of the characters in the Old Testament, some of the Bible heroes. Anyone Office fan here? I know Dan is. Dan probably could quote it better than me. But there's this one scene where, where they have basically one of their HR meetings and a guy from Diversity Today is there and he gives an acronym for them on what a hero is. Honesty, empathy, respect, and open-mindedness. And then Dwight, of course, <laughs> budges in and says, well, actually, a hero kills people and uh, is usually has some kind of superpower and is born out of some kind of tragedy in their life. <laughs> um, in typical Dwight fashion, just budges in. It's great. But today's hero does meet some of those qualifications in a way, <laughs> um, both on both sides of that definition. Today, we're going to be starting a new series with a very unique book of the Bible. It's one that the Nazis actually forbade reading of in concentration camps. It's one that Jewish inmates of Auschwitz and other death camps would literally work on memorizing so that they could recite it on a special holiday in secret. It's one that sparked hope for these victims because it's a book with a message to the Jewish people and for us that God has delivered in the past and he will continue to bring salvation to us today. So it's a book which we see the deliverance of God's people from one prideful man who just sets out this death decree to completely wipe out all the Jews. Today, I want to introduce you guys to the book of Esther. So you might be familiar with this story. A lot of times this story really gets owned by women's ministries, I feel like, which isn't fair because, guys, it's a story for us too. And she is a, a heroine of the Bible. A lot of people see her as such because of her courage and how she acts. But today, we're really going to look at this and take kind of a whole overview of the book because it's a narrative. It's a great story with lots of twists and turns and uh, some interesting characters and some amazing scenes. And it's interesting, though, because it's the only or one of two books in the Bible where the name of God is not mentioned. And many scholars believe that that's an intentional thing by the, the book's author. And it kind of, uh, they kind of look at it as a way for the author to elevate his purposes in that he shows that while God not, might not always appear present, he's always at work. And he's always working to keep his covenant promises for his people. So the Esther story is an example of how at one crucial moment in history, the covenant promises of God are made, that were made are fulfilled. They're, they're preserved. They're kept for his people. Not by some sort of miraculous intervention like we saw in Joshua with the, them crossing over the Jordan. Not by the Red Sea parting or anything like that or Babylon's walls falling down. It happens through ordinary people. That's one of the reasons why I love the book. It seems to be like these ordinary circumstances in a not-so-ordinary, I guess, society at the time. It was placed in Persia. So the story of Esther, though, is a story, it's an example of how um, God really preserves this covenant. The major theological point of Esther is that throughout history, God fulfills his covenant promises through his providence. And providence meaning that God's just working, he's in control, he's working through the everyday things, that the decisions people are making. 
God's will for an individual's life is unfolding through divine providence. It happens day by day. So we're going to dive deeper into that next week a little bit about God's timing, his providence, what that really looks like, how God works in those things. So that's what we're going to, you can hold on to that one for next week. We'll dive more into that. But my hope today is to be able to talk about how living a life of character and one that's characterized by humility ignites purpose in our lives and glorifies God. Purpose, it can get sidetracked by pridefulness, but humility acts as a catalyst for us to enter into all that God has for us. So the book of Esther is 10 chapters, like I said, packed full of all these amazing things that happen or that seem very ordinary or just kind of like these people are just making decisions as they come. But I want to give you guys the highlight reel today, and then from there we'll use that as kind of a jumping off point to talk about this theme of uh, the self-deceptive and destructive nature of pride, and we'll be able to contrast that with humility and how humility helps us to really enter into the purposes of God for our lives. So would you pray with me as we get started? God, we thank you for what you've already begun to do in our hearts today as we worshiped you, God, as we cried out to you for, for you to bring that breakthrough. I pray that we would continue to, to open up our hearts and our minds to that this morning, that you would help us, God, to come before you humbly today to, to be able to open up ourselves and recognize where we've fallen short and to face that with courage, God, to be able to go forward and make change. And I pray that as I share this message today, you would truly... Uh, use whatever I say to, to minister to each and every one of us here. We love you, God, and we, we thank you for your blessing over this church and each and every person. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, the book of Esther is, is really cool because it's written with this symmetry. It's kind of this really uh, artistic literature where there's this pivotal point halfway through, essentially, where this guy, Haman, He's this very prideful dude in Persia, and he's, a, he's a, basically a, kind of like a right-hand man to the king. And like I said, he, he sets out to destroy all the Jews. He wants to just wipe them out because of one instance that I'll get to in a moment. But we see in this pivotal point that that's actually reversed on him. That's completely turned on. The tables are turned and there's this big reversal of destiny. And it's really cool how it's written because everything that leads up to that is kind of mirrored coming down the back end of it. So we see like the opening, there's this, the, the, the splendor of the Persian king. And then towards the end, it's, it's Mordecai who's exalted. And there's just kind of this, this mirroring on, on, on one side or the other where it's leading what looks like to the, the Israelites, the Jews' doom and then turns around to them being empowered and finding blessing. So it kind of opens up, like I said, with a Persian king, and it's actually King Xerxes. And anyone seen 300 in here? Really? That, that view? All right, all right. That's what I thought. All right. <laughs> so it's the same Xerxes from 300, who here we see he's got like this whole... WWE getup. I, I only put the backside picture up because it's like this whole cape and then he's wearing like gold underwear <laughs> and like this gold shin jewelry and just jewelry everywhere. And he's just this really 
uh, opulent guy who is kind of a weirdo, but also kind of looks like a WWE rock star of some kind. So that's Xerxes. Uh, <laughs> and we can see that in this, in this first chapter, it's really uh, talking all about how his wealth was amazing. It was like something he loved to display. He loved to show off how rich he was, how great he was. He would have seen himself as a god. And he, uh, he's, in this first chapter, invites uh, these officials from all over the kingdom to come into his palace. And what happens is essentially, well, literally, they throw a six-month party. He, he puts on this six-month party. Everyone's basically drunk for six months. And he wants to win over all these officials because... He goes on to, I don't know how accurate 300 is, but to basically to try and conquer Greece. Um, so that's what he's doing. He's trying to win them over so he can get people together to go fight this, this battle and try and take over Greece. So while he's doing that, in the midst of that, he has this queen, Queen Vashti. And he essentially is like, you know what? I'm at the end of my party now. There's one thing left I got to do after this six-month-long party. I got to bring Queen Vashti in here. She's like drop-dead gorgeous. All these guys got to see her. And, of course, Queen Vashti, well, not of course. She, it was a king. He was very powerful. But she decides, you know, I don't feel like being ogled right now, really, by, like, hundreds of men. Uh, so I'm going to pass on that. And that doesn't go over well because <laughs> he's this king who is supposed to be this all-powerful dude. And his right-hand guy at the time is kind of like, you can't let her do that. All the wives in this kingdom are going to be like, I don't have to listen to you, husband. So he, in typical fashion probably at that time, for a dude who thought he had all the power, is like, you know what? I don't want to see you ever again. She's no longer queen. And this leads us to our main character, Esther. In the midst of this crazy, weird scenario of this pagan society, enters Esther. She's a Jewish woman living there in Persia. She was raised by her cousin, Mordecai, and she's taken to Xerxes to become part of his harem. But because there was something special about Esther, he made her queen. Mordecai, however, he, didn't, he told her to go on and not tell him about her her ethnicity, that she was a Jew. At that time, Jews would have been really looked down upon. This was, they were living in a pagan land after they were conquered and then uh, exiled into Babylon. And then uh, a few years before that, this is like 5th century uh, BC. In the 6th century BC, what happened was after they were conquered by Babylon, uh, they were exiled out of Jerusalem. Cyrus comes and takes over, who's a Persian uh, ruler, and he says, you can go back. You can go back to Jerusalem, go. But there's a few people who are just comfortable, and they're like, I want to stay here. And that's where we see these people. So, even so, they're very much so discriminated against. So she doesn't reveal this. She, she happens to, in the midst of what King Xerxes does is he gathers all the virgins of the land. What's the next best thing you could do after your queen does not let you show her off to hundreds of other men? You invite all the virgins that are beautiful in to choose the next wife, apparently. So he 
in this whole process, 12-month year process, goes and decides that he likes Esther the most. The Jew who he does not know is a Jew. Meanwhile, Esther's cousin Mordecai is hanging out by the gate of the king's court. One day, it just so happens that he's hanging out there, and he happens to overhear two of the king's eunuchs, who would have been like officials uh, where he was, and they were plotting to assassinate him. So Mordecai, he relays this news through Esther and isn't immediately rewarded, but this is later remembered. So we'll see that coming. But enter Haman, our guy who's trying to kill all the Jews. Why does he do that? Because he's this extremely prideful guy. He, he is given this promotion in the king's court where he becomes essentially his right-hand man, like I said. And he's so vengeful and egotistical that he hated Mordecai because every time that this guy, Haman, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but we'll go with it. Uh, every time he entered into the gate, people would bow down before him because he wanted that. But Mordecai stayed true to his faith, even though he wasn't one of the ones that returned to Jerusalem, even though the name of God isn't mentioned, we see that he still is someone who stays true to his faith and will not bow down to a person. So because of this, Haman finds out it's because he's a Jew. And so he says, well, I can't have that. I need to be bowed down to. I am the man. <laughs> and he says to the king that I want to destroy all these Jews. Let's get them out of here. And he offers to basically pay the king to do so. And the king, not caring and not knowing that Esther was a Jew, says, yeah, sure, go for it, whatever. I'm just over here getting drunk. I'll just do my thing. And so Mordecai, for refusing to bow down to him, he, along with the other Jews, are plotted against to be murdered. But Haman told the king, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom whose customs are different from all those of the other people who do not obey the king's laws. So it's not just them. It's a threat to all Jews everywhere, even in Jerusalem, every part of the Persian kingdom. And it's a threat to God's covenant because God's covenant was going to come through the people. And we know that, that we have Jesus out of the Jews. He is a descendant of Jews. So the king gave him that authority to handle the fate of the Jewish people. And he announced this government issue edict of genocide. So what could the queen do for her people at this point? She's in, she's the queen. She's made the, the, she's passed the test, whatever, made the, made the cut, I guess, out of the hundreds of others. But she could not go before the king unless he summoned her. And it had been a month since that had happened. She couldn't just barge in and, and go for it because anyone who the king did not invite in or did not extend a scepter to was to be killed. He had complete control, complete authority. And that's part of the irony of this, that we see this king who's full of pride and, and, and he's this masterful ruler and he thinks that he has all control, but in reality we see throughout the story that God is really in control in the midst of all this. So what could she do? Of all the Jews, only Esther had access to the king and Mordecai, her cousin, he persuaded her 
to speak to the king on behalf of the Jewish people, reminding her of her unique place in history. And he told her that silence isn't an option. So in one of the most poetic passages, we see that Mordecai speaks of God's purposeful timing, his perfect timing. And he says this, it's a very famous line, who knows but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. That's Esther 4.14. In other words, Mordecai basically says that Esther, listen, you, you're beautiful. God made you beautiful, partly so you could get to this position so that you could save these people. You have an opportunity here to leverage this influence, this position that you have for the good of others. So Esther knew, of course, that if she went in unsolicited, it could be a death sentence. So before making a life or death decision, she calls for the Jewish people to join on a three-day fast. Following the fast, she puts on her best royal robes, approaches the king, and told him of Haman's plot against her people. She reveals that she's a Jew and that Haman has this plot. So the Jewish people were saved, and Haman was hanged on the same gallows that he built for Mordecai to be hung on. And Esther receives Haman's estate. So there's this whole great reversal and irony of the very thing that Haman was trying to do is then done to him. So as the story unfolds, it's very evident that God has a plan and a purpose for his people. And he has a plan and a purpose specifically for Esther and Mordecai individually. Things look like they're going to be going one way. And then in this great reversal, God uses people and circumstances to turn the destiny around. And that's the main overarching theme of this book. And it's true for our lives. That God turns our destiny around when we enter into relationship with Jesus. He turns things around for our better. Sin, it brought about death into this world. And Jesus came, and he came to reverse that, to give us life both now and for eternity so that we could enter into that life and live free from sin and pursue those purposes in our lives, to live for something greater. He created, I believe, each and every one of us with this desire, that desire to to really live for something greater, to do something great. And it's really up to us to seek out what that purpose is. So like I said, today we're going to talk about how living a life characterized by humility ignites those purposes in our lives and glorifies God. Those purposes can get sidetracked by humility but when we're, or by pride, but when we enter a life of humility, we're able to see what God has for us. So stepping back from this incredible story, we essentially see four main characters here. We have King Xerxes, Haman, Esther and Mordecai. So King Xerxes and Haman, they're these extremely prideful guys. Their decisions are essentially made based off of what their agenda is and wanting to to receive their own glory. In contrast, we see Esther and Mordecai, right? They're these people, these Jews, faithful to God, who are full of humility as they think about their people, and they don't jump at an opportunity to get glory for themselves or preserve themselves, just themselves. By the time Mordecai is told of this evil plot against the Jews, Esther was in a high place. She could have very easily just turned her back 
on him, on the other Jews, and kept her secret and lived her life as the queen. Yet in chapter 4, we see that she did just the opposite. It says in verse 15, Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, go to the king, even though it is against the law. Or I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. That right there is true humility. Being willing to look at the needs of others before yourself, even in the face of very likely death for her, possible death. She didn't think too highly of herself. She probably would have had much to be proud of, but she decided to go before the king unsummoned, which could mean death. So in an act of humility, she puts others before herself. And like I said, God's not mentioned in this book, but what I love is that we still see their faith. What does she do when she, she has to face this big daunting task of possible death? She goes and she says, guys, we need to fast three days. She recognized that this earthly situation needed a heavenly response. She needed direction. So when we need God's grace, fasting can help us grow spiritually. It can help us to break through, really, the things that we're coming up against and to be given a new sense of direction. So whenever you're facing something in your life and it seems daunting, whether it's a job you have to do or a project, even in the small little things, it's it doesn't hurt to fast. It's always good to, to, a way of acting out and living out that humility is denying self by, by abstaining from eating maybe, or even if it's something else, fasting, social media, whatever it is, so that you can say, God, I, I am recognizing that my life is not my own to freely do however I want, whenever I want, but I want to honor you and I want to serve you. I want to look to you. I want to seek out that spiritual guidance and growth in my life. And she recognizes that this is a dire situation. She needs to seek God in a way that she hasn't sought him in this time. She might have even been removed, who knows, from Jewish practices living in the palace, but she still goes back to her roots of faith and says, I need to fast. I know that if I can't do this on my own, I need God to intervene in some way. So the same is true for us, that we can act out in humility by our spiritual practice, by a spiritual practice of fasting, by surrendering daily to God, by doing that prayer of just, God, I die to myself and I, I live for you. God, help me to, to not be so prideful that I only see things through my perspective, to know that I can trust you, that to do what only you can do and do it through me. So she does just that. Well, Esther, Esther chose to look at the needs of others. Haman chose just the opposite. There's a strong contrast there. He devised a plan to ultimately make himself look better and destroy the people who wouldn't bend a knee to him. He was proud and full of selfishness and hate. And ultimately, we see in chapters 6 and 7 that it destroyed him. So I just want to read that because in chapter 6, starting in 
uh, verse 4, because the irony there is just so good, what happens. Essentially, what happens is the king, uh, Xerxes, he remembers, he has this amnesia, and he remembers, oh, wait, there, wasn't there this guy that, like, saved my life? <laughs> Mordecai, like, hello. He just randomly remembered it. And then he invites in Haman because he's his right-hand man, and he says to him this, that, who is in the court? Now, Haman just entered the outer court of the palace to speak with the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered him, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for a man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man, the man the king delights to honor. So he's thinking like, here we go. I'm going to tell the king it's me that he wants to honor. So I'm going to give him some really good instructions here. Have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe of the, and the horse be entrusted to the one the, of, of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on a horse through the city streets, proclaiming, this is what is done for the man the king delights in, to honor. And then the king commands, go at once, Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on the horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. So you can imagine what he's feeling at that point. He's probably starting to recognize, I'm in trouble. Like, this is not good. The whole story, it plays out like this really great movie plot. And maybe since, you know, 300 already had Xerxes in it, maybe whatever studio did that, they can do it again, and they can just call it, like, I don't know, Two Jews or something like that. Uh, I don't know. But it, it, I mean, there's been movies made, but, you know, they're not that, like, low budget, you know, I'm talking about <laughs> Christian movies. <laughs> um, but it would be a great movie. I would love to see it. It's amazing how God used every bit of Haman's evil plan to turn back on his own head. The Jews were saved, and Mordecai was given honor. So what do some of these things look like for us? What does it mean for us? How do we face pride and humility in that struggle? We face it constantly, even though we don't live in a society like this where it's, you know, there's a kingdom. There's lots of other ways where we struggle with pride, even in day-to-day, -day, aside from jobs or, or trying to go after prestige or, or power. There's lots of other ways we face it. But let's talk about the nature of it a little bit. Pride, it asserts itself, and hears what it wants to say. But humility, it respects others and listens to wise counsel. So Homan, he, he was all about just what do I want? What do I need? What's gonna, the next step that's going to give me more power, make me greater, bring me more glory? And Esther, she is submitting to the counsel of her, her cousin Mordecai because he has in mind the good of the Jews, of, of their people. 
He looks outside of himself. She looks outside of himself. Pride and humility are both fuels which our soul can run on. They can take you vastly different places. They can fuel you to life or to destruction. In Proverbs 16, 18, it says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall. So I think we can all agree, pride is destructive. Even when we look at humanity, when we look at the story of Adam and Eve, sin itself coming into the world, it was an act of pride. It was saying, I'm, I don't have everything that I need. I need this one thing that God has forbidden. And it's disobedience, but it, deep down in the root of it, it's pride that I need to have this greater knowledge. He had everything. He was walking in the coolness of day with God, <laughs> with anything that he could have except for this one thing. So we see at the very root of sin is pride. But a humble person doesn't just seek personal power. It seek, a humble person seeks to lift others up. It can be easy for us to look at this guy, Haman, and, and say, of course this guy sets himself up for destruction. He was just this power-hungry pagan guy who was full of himself. It's easy to look at him and to think that, that we're nowhere near this kind of person. Haman's a villain-type character that we can easily love to hate as we read through the story. So what we ought to do here when we come across these types of biblical characters and these narratives, I think, is really challenge ourselves to be like, well, maybe I do reflect that in some way deep down inside. Because the reality is that we're all broken. We all sin. We've all fallen short in some way. And we all are born with a sinful nature. So while he might be the very worst of it or appear to be the very worst of it, deep down inside of us, we can look at this narrative and, and find very evident flaws of him and recognize a glimpse of our brokenness. And then when we're able to sit in that place, that's really where we're able to receive this new sense of God's grace in our life. When we're able to sit in that brokenness and realize, I, I don't have it all together, because that's what leads us to saying, I need you, God. That's what humility at its core, I feel like, is that it's this saying, I need you, God. I need your grace in my life. I need you to live for something great. Because you are great, God. You are in control. You have plans and purposes. This world is yours. You created it. So I think that's a big part of humility to be able to do that. And when we're able to receive that grace, we're able to live a life with purpose. So deep down inside, each one, every one of us, we would probably say that we desire to be a part of something great. When pride is given its way, that des desire is really distorted into, into trying to seek out personal gain. So one of the signs that pride is fueling our soul is when we're trying to achieve power to lift ourselves up. Even Jesus' disciples struggled with this. They were flawed themselves and had this lust after power. What did they think? They thought that the kingdom of God was going to be this earthly thing. So we find them fighting over it. Like, I'm going to be greater in the kingdom of God. I'm going to be the one who has more power, essentially, is what they're trying to get after. 
And Jesus, he critiqued and corrected their understanding of, of this leadership in Matthew 20, 25 to 28. It says, Jesus called them together and said, You know that rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what does greatness look like? What does humility look like? It looks like service. Success looks like lifting others up. It's what Jesus does, and it's what he invites us into doing. Our purpose at the core is to be loving God and serving people. Because so, in our service to other people, we're honoring that, that image of God in them. We're loving them as Christ would want us to love them. And when we do that, when we honor that, we realize that you know, we're not all that. We're not that great. We, we want to lift other people up because they, they, just like us, are broken people. And just like us, they need God's love. And we can do that through serving them. So our purpose at its core is to do that. As we do that faithfully, I believe that God's going to continually grow those gifts in you that you have. Because while we're, that's all of our calling, that's all something that we're called to do, to love God, to serve other people, and love other people, you're, you are uniquely created and designed. So I want you to hear that too, that while don't mix up pride with, with a confidence in who God created you to be. Because you can be confident in the gifts that he's given you, but it has to flow out of that place of love for God and serving other people. Because when you do that, God's going to begin to show you things about yourself that, hey, you know how you're like this? I want you to use that to minister to this person. I want you to use that to bless someone. So as Christians, we should be confident in that. And we should walk in confidence knowing that God created us to be able to, to take part in what he's doing. But it has to be from a, a heart of service and love for God and people. So as we do that, like I said, we'll impact more and more people. We'll be able to walk in step with his spirit and in his power. And I think that's the real key because what are they after? The prideful people that we see here, they're after their, their own power. But when we submit to God, we recognize that humility is, is saying, God, I need your power working in and through my life. Just like Esther went and fasted in an act of humility and said, God, I, I can't face this without you. We need to come before God and say, God, I need the power of your spirit working in and through my life to be able to help me, give me the strength to even sometimes just make it through the day. <laughs> if you're having a rough day, give me the, the, the creativity to be able to do this project well as an act of worship and serving you and serving other people. Whatever it is that God puts before you to do it as an act of worship and do it as you're asking God for the, the power from his Holy Spirit to do it. Because God wants you to invite him into those parts of your lives. That's humility too, to invite God into things so that you're realizing this isn't about me. This is part of what God's doing in my life. So the last verse in the book reads, Mordecai the Jew was second in rank 
to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up the welfare of the Jews. So whatever places of leadership and position or authority God has given us in life, one thing is true. It's never meant to be all about us. Every part of our life should ultimately point to God and his truth. We're constantly faced with the question of, will I take pride in my life, my accomplishments, and what God has blessed me with, or will I walk in humility and allow him to shine through it all? Mordecai and Esther both knew that they needed to live a life that resembled less of me and more of God. Their willingness to live humbly before God allowed them to work powerfully in saving his people from destruction. And I love James 4, and I'll kind of close with this, and uh, Paul can come back up. Um, James 4, it's going to be up on the screen. I'm just going to go ahead and read it up there. It says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desire to battle within you? Your desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you have asked with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with, against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the jealousy jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. And a lot of times that passage is just that one, one verse is pulled out. You have not because you ask not, but really when you look at the whole arc of it, it's essentially saying, that we often in our sinful pride tend to seek fulfillment in so many other things besides God himself. It says that our yearning, God is yearning for us to look to him. But because we can be prideful, because we can just naturally look to our own needs and, or what we perceive as our needs, we miss it. And we feel this sense of unfulfillment. But James tells us that God gives more grace. He is yearning to, to fulfill us. He gives more grace. So even if we've rejected God over and over again, and pride has repeatedly manifested its destructiveness in our life, God extends his grace. He gives us something that we don't deserve and he invites us into relationship. Maybe you've been pursuing other things and feel like you've missed out on that relationship just because you haven't been focused on, on God. Where am I letting pride manifest itself in my life? It can happen in all kinds of ways. Jonathan Edwards, he wrote, an essay that points out seven ways that it manifests itself. 
One, he says, is fault finding. And I think James is kind of pointing back to that. Fault finding in a harsh spirit. That when you are prideful, you are wanting everything to go your way. That's one way it looks like. And that can cause a lot of frustration. That can cause a lot of anger. That can cause, like James says, these quarrels because you're feeling unfulfilled. But humility would have us posture ourselves to know that it's not all about me. God, how can I be more patient? Help me to be more patient. Help me to be more loving. It can manifest itself in superficiality. Not really focusing on the the depth of our relationship with God and, and from that other people, but just what can I gain? How can I look a certain way? It can manifest itself in superficiality as in our social media accounts, trying to present ourselves a certain way. It can manifest itself as defensiveness of always thinking that you're right, that the other person can't can't be right. I'm always right. And then from that, a defensiveness that only causes hate or causes divisiveness, but God wants us to let our guard down, to let other people in as we let him in, to bring healing, to show us how he longs for us to be a forgiving and loving people. It can also manifest itself in neglecting others. There's needs all around us, and we so easily miss them. I love what Gabe's mom Gwen said last week, that, and one of the big idols of our society is self-preservation, that we just want to take care of me. What do I need? But the gospel clearly teaches, and we see it in the, the church, that it's about self-sacrifice. It's about generosity. That's what humility should look like. So God extends grace even when we let those things seep into our life, when we let pride manifest itself. And then he gives the instructions in James 4, verse 7 and 8. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. It's that simple. (laughs) Thank God that it's that simple, that we can simply say, God, I submit myself to you. And that's what I've kind of been feeling a lot lately is, God, how can I surrender to what you're doing? And I'm glad Jackie shared that because in order for something to really break in our lives that we're feeling is keeping us from moving forward in our relationship with God, we have to submit, we have to surrender. And we might not even know what that looks like, but it can start with just asking God, help me, God, forgive me of of any ways that pride has manifested itself. Help show me those things, convict me of them, lead me into humility. And I submit to you, God, to your ways. It's not about me. And ask him, God, help me to resist the devil so that he will flee from me. Help me to walk in your victory that I know I have. Just as Esther tells of a great reversal of destiny to the 5th century Jews, the Gospels tell of a reversal of destiny for all of us today. A reversal of destiny that makes its way for us to come near to God and find ultimate fulfillment. 
So much of our sin is, is, like I said, rooted in pride. Just seeking things that we think will make us feel good in the moment instead of humbly submitting to God when we face those weaknesses. One of the most important aspects of living a life full of humility is recognizing that we don't have what it takes in and of ourselves. We don't have that strength. But we can ask God to help us give that strength, give us that strength to make right choices in our day-to-day lives. Because of that relationship with God, we can invite him in to give us the strength to choose righteousness that's only found in him. So our fate, it was reversed by the seemingly insignificant death of one man, Jesus of Nazareth. He dragged the cross through those streets. His death was not the outcome that his followers expected. But it was a destiny, even though it was so unexpected that they could have never even imagined that this would be their Messiah. They weren't ordinary events. Through this one man, Jesus, we know that we have God fulfilling his promise to us of a life-giving covenant, just as he did for his people back then. Philippians 2 tells us that in humility, he bore the cross, he went to the cross, and he died in our place. He took on what was our destiny so that we could have life in him. So what I want to do, we'll go ahead and sing one more song in worship and just ask God, where do I need to submit to you, God? I know your grace is here. It's here. It's for you right now. No matter how long you feel like you've known God, it's here and now. It's available. It's just at a response of saying, God, I submit to you. I surrender. So I'm going to pray and then I'll let Paul close us out with a song. God, we come before you recognizing that we don't have it all together. We can be angry people. We can be people who put ourselves before others. Help us to recognize those around us, to see them, to see them how you see them. Help us to submit ourselves to you, God. To live a life that recognizes that we're not in control. You're in control, God. And because you're in control, we should seek out day to day your love and mercy in our lives. And I pray that that would be present and felt this morning as we sing this song, that you would do a renewal in our hearts, a renewal in our spirits, God, as only you can do by your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray.